Welcome back everyone. My name is Ben on History in the Valley, and today's recording is not going to be a regular podcast history lesson. Today is December 7th, which is a special and commemorative day. And this episode is dedicated to the many who were there and or affected by the events that occurred on that fateful day we are about to discuss. Before I continue, I want to apologize in advance for any potential mispronunciations or misreadings during the episode. With that said, here's episode four of season four. Enjoy. December 8th, 1941, 12.30 p.m. Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the 32nd President of the United States, stands before Congress during a joint session in Washington, D.C., and before the American public, who are attentively listening to the radio as he begins his speech. Vice President, Mr. Speaker, members of the Senate, of the House of Representatives, yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. The United States was at peace with that nation and at solicitation of Japan still in conversation with its government and its emperor, looking toward the maintenance of peace in the Pacific. Indeed, one hour after Japanese air squadrons had commenced bombing in the American island of Oahu, the Japanese ambassador to the United States and his colleague delivered to our Secretary of State a formal reply to a recent American message. And while this reply stated that it seemed useless to continue the existing diplomatic negotiations, it contained no threat or hint of war or of armed attack. It will be recorded that the distance of Hawaii from Japan makes it obvious that the attack was deliberately planned many days or even weeks ago. Eighty years ago, on December 7, 1941, the attack on Pearl Harbor became one of the most tragic events in U.S. history. It caught America off guard and without warning, which immediately infuriated thousands and thousands of Americans. It was the moment that fueled American patriotism to extreme levels. They wanted to fight back, to avenge Pearl Harbor, like the Texans who responded to the fall of the Alamo in 1836. America, once again, was quick to enter another world war that would again change the course of history. 
So why did this surprise attack happen, and for what reason? To understand this, we must look back to the interwar period, the years following the First World War. Ever since taking away Germany's colonial territories and islands in the Pacific during World War I, Imperial Japan was growing in power and influence like its Western counterparts, having even embarrassed the Russians in the Russo-Japanese War of 1905-06. When the Great Depression hit, Japan's own survival was on the fringes as their natural resources were being depleted. Therefore, under the emperor, who was under heavy pressure from the militarist government, authorized the imperial army and navy to begin carrying out military campaigns to seize resource-rich territories for Japan. The imperial empire used this to also spread their own influence over the Pacific to gain a higher global status. Since the early 1930s, many of the Western countries, especially the United States, was disgusted with the actions being committed by the growing Imperial Japanese Empire, who was moving rapidly through East Asia with their military. For instance, in 1931, the Japanese Empire conquered Manchuria, and six years later, in 1937, began a long, gruesome campaign in China that was producing slow success over the time. Soon, Japan began committing larger atrocities, including the First Sino-Japanese War and the Nanking Massacre, or Rape of Nanking, in late 1937. It was even discovered that they were giving out harsh and horrendous treatment to their captives and POWs in occupied zones. To the United States and much of Europe, the Japanese Empire was appearing to consume the Pacific into darkness. By the time fighting between China and Japan escalated during the early outbreak of World War II, the United States, already concerned with their economic and political interests in Asia, began sending military and financial aid to Chinese forces, and after Japan joined the Axis powers in 1940, the U.S. sent their Pacific fleet to USA's naval port at Pearl Harbor located on southern Oahu Island in Hawaii. This was to both strengthen their naval presence and to reinforce the already existing embargo of oil and resources to Japan. The cutoff of normally natural resources imported from the USA was an extreme threat to Japan's own survival, and with the bigger presence of the US Navy, the Imperial Japanese Empire were sorting ways to keep the U.S. Navy at bay while weakening America's Pacific supremacy if there was any chance to expand any further and to secure their future. In January of 1940, after numerous proposals to the government, the late Admiral of the Imperial Japanese Navy, Iso Roku Yamamoto, developed and petitioned a plan that was created to be one single large strike that would stall the U.S. Navy and possibly force the president to sue for peace. His plan was to preventatively attack the U.S. Pacific Fleet at Pearl Harbor, where the fleet had stationed all their ships and planes. With approval from the higher-ups, 
and further encouragement by future Prime Minister Tojo. Yamamoto spent the next year and a half assembling the Kido Butai, or the first air fleets. The convoy would consist of six aircraft carriers, with 414 airplanes in total. Only 353 would see action, as the other 61 planes had malfunctioned on the day of the attack. There were three types of bomber planes that was to be part of the attack. The Nakajima Kate High-Level Bomber, the modified Kate Bomber with torpedoes, and the Aichi Val Dive Bomber. The iconic Mitsubishi Zero fighter was also part of the attack force as a fighter group. Despite the lack of protective armor and small firepower, the Zeros were superior in speed and maneuverability next to the Allied fighter planes. Alongside the carriers were two battleships, three cruisers, nine destroyers, eight tankers, 23 submarines, and five Type A midget submarines. As Yamamoto spent time putting this tire fleet together, many airmen and sailors were training and prepping for the day to come. Late November 1941, Admiral Yamamoto's first air fleet was ready and trained for combat. November 25th, 2.15 a.m. A small detachment of submarine I-boats with their midget submarines departed Japan en route for Pearl Harbor. November 26th, around 6 a.m. Japanese time. The combined air fleet under the command of Naval Vice Admiral Churichi Nagumo got underway and for the next few days sailed east then reached a waypoint on December 3rd, turning south. December 7th, between 1 and 3.35 in the morning. The five midget submarines were launched roughly 10.5 miles from the mouth of Pearl Harbor. 6.10. The combined fleet anchors roughly 200 miles north of Oahu Island, and the first wave of aircraft takes off. 181 planes in total. There were three separate groups in the first wave, each with their own objectives. 49 three-man B-5N Kate high-level bombers to target the U.S. battleships and aircraft carriers. 40 modified Kate torpedo bombers armed with armor-piercing bombs and Type 19 torpedoes to also target the U.S. battleships and aircraft carriers. 51 two-man D-3A Val dive-level bombers to target both Ford Island and Wheeler Airfield. And finally, 43 Mitsubishi Zeros to target and shoot down any U.S. fighter planes across the island and maintain air supremacy. Meanwhile, several hours earlier, at around 3.34 a.m., the U.S. minesweeper USS Condor spotted a periscope from one of the five midget submarines near the mouth of the harbor, signaling the nearby destroyer USS Ward, who then pursues the sub. 640. A second midget sub is spotted tailing Navy cargo ship USS Antares 
to which Ward swiftly sinks the midget sub. Thus, the first shots and casualties of the Pacific War made by the U.S. Navy. 653. The USS Ward radioed HQ about the recent events, but gets delayed during the decoding process. 702. Two alert operators at the Opena radio station, located at the northernmost point of Oahu, north of Pearl Harbor, spotted 50 or more unidentified airplanes approaching and reports to HQ. 7.15 U.S. Four-Star Admiral Husband Kimmel and Lieutenant General Walter C. Short, both sharing command of the naval base, dismisses the radar alert received five minutes earlier after verification. Both assume that it was just the B-17 bombers that were being sent from California, a decision that will cost them dearly. Around that time, the second wave of aircraft takes off with 168 in total, made up of 54 Cape bombers, 78 valve dive bombers, and 36 Mitsubishi Zeros, all with the same objectives. 740. The first wave of Japanese planes reach Oahu, passing the Waimea Bay. 745. The first wave strikes Wheeler Field along their southward route to Pearl Harbor, the first American casualties inflicted by the Japanese in the Pacific Front, later counting to 37 killed and 53 wounded by the end of the day. Sunday, December 7th, 1941, 7.55 a.m. Several sailors leave their ships early in the morning to take leave for church service but most of the others were still stirring or slowly getting ready for the day. As it nears the 8 o'clock hour, the men, however, were quickly awoken to the sounds of multiple propeller engines above their heads, only to be shocked at the sight of hundreds of planes approaching the harbor. Without warning, the planes rapidly descend onto the harbor in form large formations, raining gunfire and bombs over the port. The surprise attack has been sprung. Ten minutes after the Japanese hit Wheeler Field, the first wave began their attack runs, starting from the north and west. The Val dive bombers were the first to strike as they descended on Hick Hickam Field, located south of the harbor where the U.S. bomber planes were stationed. Releasing their heavy 550-pound bombs upon the idle bomber planes, the valve dive bombers laid waste to the U.S. bombers, which were destroyed, burning, left burning, and exploding. Three of the five U.S. hangars were destroyed, and the casualty count was mounting up as many pilots had died attempting to take shelter in the hangars, only, that, only to be engulfed by flames. The event quickly shifted north, where for the Japanese Navy raiders was the main objective for the mission. Florida Island. Let's quickly side note before continuing. Sitting in the center of the harbor, Ford Island was essentially one large mooring deck for a large bulk of the Navy's warships, the might of the Pacific Fleet. Aside from its small airfield, 
several barracks, and a seaplane base. Ford, I Ford Island's eastern section contains the ever-significant and well-known Battleship Row. As implied by the name, eight war-aged battleships were docked in a row by twos. The USS Maryland, USS Oklahoma, USS Tennessee, USS West Virginia, USS Arizona, and USS Nevada. The last two ships were exceptions, as the USS Arizona was next to the repair ship Vestral, and the Nevada was docked by herself at the end of the line. Two additional battleships were here. The Battle Force flagship USS California moored in the lead ahead of oiler ship Neoshu, which was in front of the Maryland and Oklahoma. The 8th battleship and the fleet flagship USS Pennsylvania was in the dry docks across from the island for ongoing repairs. The ex-battleship USS Utah, converted to a target ship well before 1940, was moored on the opposite side of the island. All of these old-aged battleships, along with the aircraft carriers moored near the Utah, were to be the biggest prizes and the ingredients to Japanese success, though the carriers were not there, but more on that later. As the first wave of planes converged to the inner harbor, the modified Cape Bombers flew low toward the battleship row from the south, with a few zeros to take out any anti-aircraft guns on board the ships. With impressive accuracy and precision targeting, they sent their torpedoes striking home, especially into California, West Virginia, and Oklahoma. Of the three, Oklahoma was the second battleship to be hit during the first wave, which capsized within 10 minutes due to three torpedoes, taking down 400 sailors with her. Following the initial run, the Cape Bombers dropped their 16-inch armor-piercing shells on top of the ships, alongside some of the VAL planes who were busy targeting the Ford Islands airfield. It is at this moment where one of the most significant but tragic moments of the attack occurred. The battleship USS Arizona, designation BB-39, was the first battleship to be hit by bombs, and despite having evaded most of the initial torpedoes thanks to the repair ship Vestal, Arizona was heavily peppered by 16-inch shells, each with 1,760 pounds of explosives carried by 10 of the Cape Bombers. The first four bombs that hit the deck caused limited damage, and three more missed. However, the last bomb, dropped at around 8.05, penetrated the Arizona's front deck near turret number two, which dug in deep, hitting the main forward magazine below. And within seven seconds, a devastating and catastrophic explosion blew out the front of the ship. 1,000 of the Arizona's crew died instantly from that explosion. To this day, it is up to debate by many people how the massive magazine explosion occurred. The USS Utah, at around the same time of the explosion, capsized just like the Oklahoma, while the Nevada, the only battleship to move 
during the attack, attempted to engage the enemy outside the harbor, but it was hit by several more bombs and was then ordered to run aground near Hospital Point to avoid blocking the entrance. The last major event during the first wave, at around 8.17 a.m., destroyer USS Helm sunk a submarine after spotting it near the mouth of the harbor. From then, for the next 40 minutes, the first wave of Cape bombers and valve bombers continued to pepper the battleships and the airfields nearby with minimal to maximum effect. The first wave had ended, but it was not over yet. As the second wave arrived at around 8.54 a.m. with their 168 aircraft, only this time the second wave arrived from the north and east after having attacked hitting two targets, two other airfields outside Pearl Harbor, Kei-Niyo-Hei Pass and Bellows Field. Sadly, many American pilots attempting to take off were killed on the airfield by the skilled Japanese Zeros. But a few pilots from a smaller, untargeted field to the far west got airborne and eventually reached the two fields, shooting down close to 10 enemy planes. Meanwhile, in Pearl Harbor, the three different attack groups made similar runs made by the first wave, but was met with more opposition as several anti-aircraft guns, especially from the USS Maryland, were active and shooting down more enemy planes. Different sources say that close to 30 planes were shot out of the sky, while up to 30, 75 Japanese aircraft were heavily damaged after the attack. Civilians of the nearby capital of Honolulu were also under attack, mainly during the second wave. It was recorded that roughly 68 U.S. Hawaiian citizens were killed, with 35 additionally wounded. After many investigations later on, it was determined that most of the casualties were due to alleged friendly fire from a nearby dogfight. 9.30 a.m. Another catastrophic event occurred, this time with the destroyer USS Shaw, which exploded while sitting in the dry dock after a heavy shell dropped into the front portion of the hull. Like the Arizona, Shaw's forward ammunition magazines detonated in a spectacular blast, completely removing her bow, sinking a tugboat that was nearby. Another victim of catastrophe, but thankfully there were far less men killed. Finally, at around 10 a.m., after nearly two hours of aerial attacks, Imperial Japanese Navy Vice Admiral Nagumo ordered all planes to return back to the aircraft carriers after turning down a potential third wave in a meeting. The fleet shortly began their voyage back to Japan which would later arrive on December 23rd. In the end, for the Jap Imperial Japanese Navy, the casualties told to 64 Japanese killed, 55 of which were in aircraft, nine in the midget submarines, and one was taken prisoner the following day after having been spotted escaping from his beach midget sub. 29 planes were lost, and all five midget subs were lost, either sunk or captured. 
a low number overall. For the U.S. Navy, the casualty numbers were catastrophic. Included were 2,404 Navy personnel killed and another 1,178 wounded, plus the addition of 68 civilians. 1,177 of the personnel killed came from aboard the USS Arizona, nearly half of the total military personnel loss. Between 159 and 374 aircraft were destroyed or damaged, most of which were on the ground. And finally, 19 different ships were sunk or severely damaged, with more in various degrees of damage. Of the 19 ships, all eight of the battle-worn ships, battleships, plus the ex-battleship Utah, were in different states of damage Except for the Arizona, Oklahoma, and Utah, all were repaired and solely reinstated back into service. The list was as follows. USS Pennsylvania, lightly damaged by a bomb with nine dead, remained in service after repairs. USS California, sunk by two torpedoes and two bombs with 100 dead and 62 wounded raised in 1942 and returned to service in 1944. The USS Maryland, moderately damaged by two bombs, no critical hits, but left with four dead, returned to service in 1942. It was re recorded with record with downing at least one enemy plane with its anti-aircraft guns, very decorated at the end of the war. USS Oklahoma, sunk, capsizing after three torpedoes hit with 429 dead. Raised in 1944, but was deemed unfit for repairs, thus removed from the fleet, scrapped in three years. USS Tennessee, moderately damaged with busted main turrets by two bombs, leaving nine dead. Returned to service several months later. The USS West Virginia, sunk by seven torpedoes and two bombs, engulfed in burning oil for 30 hours with 106 dead, was returned to service in 1944 after repairs. It was the only active battleship to be present during Japan's formal surrender in 1945 alongside the USS Missouri, also well decorated. USS Arizona sunk and destroyed beyond repair. Again, 1,177 men killed. 1,000 are from the explosion. The ship later converted into a war memorial. The USS Nevada, beached after a torpedo and six bombs hit her, leaving with 60 dead, was raised and returned to service in 1942. USS Utah, ex-battleship, sunk, capsizing after two torpedoes with 64 killed, left at the bottom of the harbor, later a memorial site. Upon returning to Japan in late December, Vice Admiral Nagumo declared the attack on Pearl Harbor a success, as far as disrupting the Pacific Fleet, putting the U.S. Navy in check, 
and buying time for the Imperial Japanese Navy to conquer more of the Pacific. However, Admiral Yamamoto, the mastermind behind the attack, if you remember, was distraughted and criticized him for his decision to call off a third wave, additionally missing too many of the intended targets. Nagumo himself was troubled as one of his main targets were not, was not present, the aircraft carriers, as mentioned earlier. See, as displayed by Adolf Hitler in the 1939 invasion of Poland, air supremacy was very crucial in the new type of strategic fighting instated by World War II, especially for sea dominance in sea, open sea warfare. Even when battleships were the driving force on the water, these mobile islands, as they were sometimes called, allowed for planes to take off inland from anywhere out in the ocean and to attack enemy warships from a distance rather than ship-to-ship -ship confrontation. The issue was, a majority of the U.S. Navy's aircraft carriers were on the west coast being worked on, thus absent. The only U.S. aircraft carriers in the area were the USS Enterprise and the USS Lexington. They were, however, not at their assigned docks on the morning of the 7th as they were sent on separate missions to the islands of Wake and Midway delivering planes. The Enterprise, which was hundreds of miles away and returning to Pearl Harbor, received the radio messages of the attack during the first wave and attempted to engage the enemy characters, carriers with a hastily assembled strike force of Wildcat fighters and Douglas torpedo bombers. Initially sent toward the enemy car carriers, at 5 p.m., the airplanes couldn't find the Japanese Navy, thus returned empty-handed. Another failure with the attack on Pearl Harbor was that Nagumo was too focused on the airfields and the warships that the other naval facilities, the submarine base, the oil tank farms, coal docks, hospital, maintenance shops, and even the headquarters with the intel department were not targeted at all, therefore undamaged. The dozens of destroyers and battlecruisers that were docked side by side in the open waters, along with tankers and smaller seaboats, were barely hit if not touched by the bombers and torpedo plants, which are just as important as the bigger warships. At a little past 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, Several minutes after the first wave of planes descended onto Pearl Harbor, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt in Washington, D.C. during his lunch was informed of the Pearl Harbor attack, and he immediately ordered all military forces to mobilize and called his cabinet to an emergency meeting that lasted for several hours. On the following day, broadcasted live by radio, FDR's six-and-a-half-minute infamy speech brought in the largest audience in American radio history, with over 81% of people tuning in. It became the most well-known speech in U.S. history, among the Gettysburg Address and later Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream. In it, the President explained the recent events that had occurred both in Pearl Harbor and with Japanese diplomats, exclaiming that there was no hint of treachery nor formal declaration of war, and was therefore calling to go to war with the Imperial Japanese Empire.
Shortly after, the overwhelming congressional vote for war with Japan was made known to the other nations. In other words, the United States of America had officially entered the fray once more to turn the war around like with World War I. Great Britain had already declared war on Japan nine hours earlier before the U.S. did with Winston Churchill telling over the phone to FDR that we are all in the same boat now. The USA would declare war on Germany and Italy later that day. Then, three days later, Germany, alongside Italy, declared war on the United States, although it was unnecessary by that point. The Imperial Japanese Navy and Army, following December 1941, continued to conquer more islands in the Western Pacific, including Guam, Wake Island, the Philippines, the Dutch East Indies, Malaya, and Burma. It would, however, come to a grinding halt six months later as the U.S. Navy was back on its feet and with greater numbers in ships and sailors in time for the Battle of Midway in mid-1942 a failed Japanese surprise attack on the island and turning point of the Pacific War in America's favor, which ultimately destroyed the Imperial Japanese Navy beyond repair. Vice Admiral Nagumo would later go on to be one of the officers at Midway, only to be reassigned after the defeat and was commander-in-chief in lesser naval operations, both at Guadalcanal, Guadalcanal in 1942-43 and at the Battle of Saipan in 1944. He committed suicide toward the end of the battle and his remains were returned to Japan by the end of the war. Admiral Yamamoto, meanwhile, would continue as the leading commander of the combined fleet at Midway in June 1942, though afterwards he would lose face with the imperial government retained only to keep up the morale of the Japanese Navy. Yamamoto, however, was killed in April 1943 while touring inspections at naval bases in the South Pacific in his bomber transports. He was shot down by a large squadron of U.S. Lockheed P-38s whom revealed his movements through intercepted and decrypted messages. His death was a big blow to the Japanese Navy's morale and hope for victory. So what did we learn from this significantly tragic event? Well, several things. One, Pearl Harbor was a wake-up call, reminding us that we are not the invincible superpower that we think we are, especially when unforeseen terrorism attacks reach American home soil. Second, Pearl Harbor tells us that America should now and into the future be quick to get on its feet, to respond, and to defend our country when the time in need. Third, Pearl Harbor rallied America to unify, something that faded away over time since the birth of the nation. Now, together and with strong patriotism, thanks to Pearl Harbor, we are prepared to defend our freedom and to take the fight to the enemy if necessary, regardless of our own individual political and or social differences. This level of unity would be seen again 60 years later with the 9-11 attacks in New York City and in Washington, D.C.
One small side note, the USS Arizona later memorialized many years after the attacks and now part of the Pearl Harbor National Park commemorates the lives of not just the many sailors and servicemen killed on the USS Arizona, but represents the lives of many who were lost on December 7, 1941, and reminds us that we shall never, shall never forget Pearl Harbor. Truly, the tragedy, the attack on Pearl Harbor in 1941, is a date which will live in infamy. I believe that I interpret the will of the Congress and of the people when I assert that we will not only defend ourselves to the uttermost, but will make it very certain that this form of treachery shall never again endanger us. Hostilities exist. There is no blinking at the fact that our people, our territory, and our interests are in grave danger. With confidence in our armed forces, with the unbounding determination of our people, we will gain the inevitable triumph so help us God. I ask that the Congress declare that since the unprovoked and dastardly attack by Japan on Sunday, December 7, 1941, a state of war has existed between the United States and the Japanese Empire. This episode was put together with research from many sources and references, including Infograde's Remembering the Pearl Harbor Attack of 1941, Natural National Geographic Second Story Remembering Pearl Harbor History Channel Britannica PearlHarbor.org The Pearl Harbor National Memorial and the USS Arizona Memorial Naval History and Heritage Command National Public Radio EarthlyIssues.com and the Roanoke Times Please support them by visiting their website location, or social media pages to learn more. I made this commemorative episode not just to celebrate the many servicemen who served and were present at Pearl Harbor and the survivors, but in honor of a dear friend, beloved neighbor, hero, and Pearl Harbor survivor, George June Williams. He was stationed aboard the USS Maryland when the Japanese surprise attack happened in Pearl Harbor. He was one of the many men who had helped to rescue other survivors from other sinking damaged ships. Having survived and continued to serve in the Navy until after Japan surrendered, 
His story is one of many told by other survivors of what they experienced, what they felt on that tragic day. Although he passed away in 2018, he was one of many of my inspirations to love history, to study the stories, events of our past, and to preserve it by any means, even with this podcast. I used to remember talking with him all the time on his porch as a younger kid, and occasionally he would tell me stories from his past, either as a businessman, an insurance agent, or as a sailor in the Navy. I felt that this episode would pay homage also to his service to our country, who fought for our freedom and for the freedom of his neighbors, children, and many grandchildren. So thank you, Jim. You are always in our hearts forever. Thank you for listening to another episode. I hope that you enjoyed it. As usual, History in the Valley is a progressive podcast that continues to improve with every episode and season. Therefore, I encourage you to invite family, friends, and even neighbors to listen into this podcast. The number of played episodes and listeners helps provide me with performance feedback on Anchor, from which I can improve future episodes with better quality and more content for your enjoyment. My email, benhistorian1 at gmail.com, is open for any episode commentary or feedback that you might have for me. Don't forget to find me on Spotify or on other podcast platforms by searching for History in the Valley, save it to your playlist, and enable notifications so you don't miss out on the latest episodes. Stay tuned for one last episode recording for this season sometime within the next two weeks before Christmas. But until then, where there's history, there's a story to be told. I'll see you soon.